I'm really excited tonight to share with you some things from the Word. I know that's why you came as well. You want to get a little clearer glimpse of who Christ is. Uh, so together we get to go down this wonderful road. Because what we are, we are sons and daughters of the King. We are brothers and sisters. You can use all the spiritual lingo of what we are, Christians and followers of Jesus. But at the end of the day, what brought us all in is this love for Christ. That we all fell in love with Jesus and this idea that that you and I are following him uh, through whatever, through hell sometimes, uh, through the good times, through the bad times, through the mountains, through the valleys, wherever. We're not followers of a church. We're not followers of a pastor. We're not followers of the Bible. We're followers of Jesus. And therefore, Jesus needs to be the centerpiece of what we talk about so that we know what we're following. Jesus once said of the Pharisees and scribes, they are the blind leaders of the blind. Well, to say that we're blind is nothing, but to be led by someone who's blind is even worse. And so there's been a lot of times when the pulpit isn't showing us Jesus and we're blindly stumbling after a message that doesn't take us to the centerpiece. And that's Christ. I don't want to be guilty of that this weekend. I want to try to give you a clear and lucid picture of who Christ is. I know that when we do that, we interject ourselves. I can't help it. When I talk about Jesus, I'm going to interject how I see Jesus. And when you talk about Jesus, you're going to interject how you see Jesus. And we all bring that to the table. That's something we always have to wrestle with. We always have to wrestle with how much of what I'm seeing of the Father and how much of what I'm seeing with Jesus is me. That's why the wrestling never ends. That's why Israel in the Hebrew means he who contends with God. Because the true Israel wrestles with the image of God. We wrestle with that image repeatedly over and over again until we land in a spot. So... I try to think in concise ways what I want to accomplish tonight. So every time I go into a sermon, it's not about can I make three points and tell a humorous story and give an illustration and then lead into a certain song. I used to think that way in preaching. You had to, you almost did like a little skit. It was almost a performance. You knew when you were going to hit your big moment and when you hoped they laughed and when you'd ask for a second amen. And I, I just dispensed of all that stuff and really just tried to distill it down to a thought. What do I hope they leave with? And if you can't say it in one sentence, then work on it until you can say it in one sentence. It doesn't need to be 40 minutes of what I hope they leave with. What do I hope they leave with based on this text? What I hope they leave with based on this thought? And so as I distill it down, this is not some sort of title for the message, but it's really more of a theme for where I want to go tonight. And then I don't know where we go the next night sometimes. I don't know where we go the next day because as we try to talk about Jesus, I like to see where we land at the end and then say, okay, that's where we need to be tomorrow night. That's where we need to be Sunday morning. And so together, you and I will get there. But sort of a theme of what I kind of working with as I go tonight is what was it about Jesus that kept people from embracing him as the Messiah they had been looking for their entire lives? What was it about? Because when I look at Jesus, I say, oh, how could they not take Jesus? He feeds the hungry. He raises the dead. He's not scared to hug the leper. He loves the adulteress and the tax collector and the public. He, he's everything the world is looking for. Why, could, why do they reject Jesus? And so it's difficult for me looking back to get my mind around why they missed it. I mean, you watch him walk on water. How do you miss that? You, you watch him feed the 5,000 with a little kid's lunch. How do you miss that? 
He, he raises Lazarus from the dead. He's been dead four days. How do you miss that? You think, I wouldn't miss that. Well, I don't want to bust your bubble, but you probably would have missed that. And I would have missed that if we were there. But that leads us to the question, why? Why would we have missed it? Because looking back, it seems impossible that I would have missed it. But why would I miss Jesus if he were in front of me? Now, I want to say, maybe you wouldn't have. I'll be fair. Maybe you wouldn't have missed it, all right? But I can't speak for you. I can speak for me. And the truth is, I think I would have missed it. And here's why. Because, you know what? I've been a, I've been a believer most all of my life. And I've, I've told you just a little bit of my testimony. I won't go back over it. But I haven't spent any real chunk of my life not in the family of God. In fact, I haven't really spent any of my life not in the family of God. Um, so I don't really know what it's like to run. I, I don't know what it's like even to slop the hogs like the prodigal son. I'm the elder brother that stays home, works in the field, and asks dad why he don't throw a party for me. That was me a lot of times. Going, why, why are we celebrating that lost person getting saved? I've been saved my whole life. Ain't nobody throwing a party for me. That, that was my real revival of grace was going, <laughs> you need to meet your father again. Uh, so I haven't had that experience, that wandering. That, I mean, I've had my own wilderness, but I haven't had that running from the Lord experience. So it's difficult in some ways for me to go, why don't you see Jesus? And why would anybody reject him? And how could they miss him? But saying that kind of gets me a little bit closer to the mindset of a first century Jew who had Moses in their heritage, who was raised on the Torah and who was always looking for signposts. They were always looking for markers and they had come out of a very tangible religion where they could touch the lamb, they could smell the incense, they could hear the sound of the priest's bells, they could see the temple, very tangible. I like to always say a touch and feel religion that was sort of first century Judaism. Okay, in a way, I was kind of that guy because I came from a very tangible sort of Pentecostal charismatic background where everything could be touched. You could feel the anointing. You could almost smell the fragrance of God in the room. You, you had these tangible evidences of God. And so you had these ideas and you had almost physical markers, signposts of when Jesus was coming back and what it looked like when the Holy Ghost showed up in the room and how you knew someone was really saved and all of the, or how you knew they were really filled with the Holy Spirit. And all of these tangiblenesses that that's as close as I can get to the mindset of a first century Jew who's got all of that visual stuff in front of them. This visual Judaism. And then here comes Jesus. Now, I'm always my, uh, coming up in a, in a very tangible Christianity looking for Jesus. Uh, I, I happen to be blessed with, to be into a family. My, my father's a pastor and an evangelist and he preached a lot of Jesus. And so that marked me in some ways that when I have had renewals in my spirit about who Christ is and who the Father is, it's always about Jesus which I'm thankful for, but I was all, you know, always looking for evidences of him, always looking for his arrival. So in that way, I might have been a little bit like a first century Jew. I was always looking for the Messiah. I was always looking for evidence of Jesus' appearing, looking for evidence of who he is and what he is. And so through that lens, I kind of get it how they missed him because now... I feel like I'm being saved all over again the older I get because I'm starting to meet Jesus again. And the Jesus I'm meeting is shaking me out of the shackles of the mentality that I had about him and the things I expected about him. And he's stripping those things away. 
And it's painful sometimes because the Jesus I end up with isn't the Jesus I thought I knew because he takes away some of the stuff I thought he should look like, sound like, and act like. And therefore, the Jesus I'm walking into is making me into a new creation because he doesn't always look like the Jesus I had. And in that, I think I know how they missed him. Because they're in a tangible system of religion where the sound, the smell, the sight, and the feel of a God that could be touched at Sinai. And here comes Jesus. And as he begins to be unveiled as the one, there's this groundswell of excitement that happens. If you'll read the early chapters of the Gospels, it's a different world than the late chapters of the Gospels. Here's a fun little project for you. When you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just stay in the first four chapters in each book. And there's a general excitement. It's, those are the revival chapters of the Gospels. The Jesus crowds are getting bigger and bigger And everywhere he goes, people are losing their minds. They're dragging sick people out into the streets. They're applauding him at every turn. They're singing songs about... It's it's getting nuts. It's getting out of hand. Then you watch the gospel start to turn. And usually about a quarter of the way through the gospel. Some different because you've got some gospels longer than others. Some gospel focus is different than other gospel focus. That's for another time. But you'll watch that turn somewhere usually around the, the quarter mark, the half mark where Jesus starts to preach more. You start to get into the vocal Jesus. He's a little less touchy and a little more vocal. And as he gets more vocal, you watch things start to get a little shaky. They get a little disruptive and the crowds start to get agitated. And you even watch in some gospels, the crowds start to shrink as people are turning away going, "Mm, I don't know if he's who he says he is. I don't know if we should follow him or not. I don't know. He might be kind of nuts. And then as you get to the last of every one of the four gospels, they go real dark. Like the lights go out. Jesus starts talking about dying a lot. He starts talking about resurrection. He starts talking about going back to his father. He starts talking about leaving us behind, uh, not permanently, but leaving us in a natural sense. And the books get shaded towards this, almost this darkness as you read those gospels. And if you're watching behind the scenes carefully through these gospels, you watch the crowd swell, the excitement grow, and then the question marks start to show up at the end of conversations. People start to question whether Jesus is this, and they start to question whether Jesus is that. And you know as well as I do that by the time we get to Calvary, he has one disciple left at the foot of the cross and his mom and a few other people. But he hangs between two criminals. One trusts him, one doesn't. It's almost indicative of the entire way his ministry has went. That no matter where you put Jesus, the crowd's always going to be split. Even in his death, one's going to love him, one's going to hate him. And you get to the end of it, and and if you're like me, you get to the end and go, how dare they crucify the Lord of glory? How could they have missed it that they had Jesus? But I'm going a little easier on them. Because I think I know how they could have missed it. And so I wanted tonight to explore in a singular passage. Because I love to run all over the Bible. I get a big thrill out of going, let's go to this book, this book, this book, this book. Okay, I do. But I'm not going to do that tonight. You've had a long week. It's Friday night. You just chill. You're relaxed. We're just going to go to one Jesus story and work through that. We might end up in one more. We'll kind of see how we go. But we're going to really concentrate on one. So I want to find that moment. Where in one distinct story, it turned. 
Because if you can find the pivot moment where people are like, yay, he's the one. And then you can watch almost in real time them go, I don't know if he's the one. That's a microcosm of Jesus' whole life. Hey, we think we found the Messiah. Oh, I don't know. Is he the Messiah? Oh, he can't be the Messiah. Oh, he must be a son of the devil. Let's kill him. You watch how that, that arc happens in the life of Jesus? How about watching that happen in one story? And then, if you can take that story and explore the details, I think we'll get to the end of this message tonight and we'll be able to answer that question. What kept them from accepting that Jesus was the one? Because I think we'll find it's the same thing that sometimes keeps us from accepting what God wants to do on the earth. And so go with me to the book of Luke, the fourth chapter. And I want to take you on a little journey and I want to read in a very strange way. And and by that, I mean not like in pig Latin or something, but I want to read in a strange way in that I read just two verses that are not back to back. I want to walk. I want you to see the switch and then we're going to go read the story because in the story we find Jesus do his work. Go to Luke chapter four. And before we break this down and really give the details, I want to start with three verses and I want to jump to one verse. Start in verse 20 of Luke chapter 4. Please don't worry yet about what he's reading. I'll go back through it, all right? We're not, I'm not skipping things because I don't want to deal with them. I'm just trying to set up a thought for us tonight. In verse 20 of Luke 4, he closed the book. He gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Look at the, the wonder the awe and the marvel in verse 22 when they hear Jesus speak on a Saturday morning in the synagogue reading from the scroll of Isaiah chapter 61. They are stunned. They have never seen anything like it. And part of the reason they're stunned is because at the end of verse 21, he said, today this scripture is fulfilled. We're going to get into what that means in a moment, but notice that whatever Jesus just read, he claims you're seeing it right now. And everybody in the room goes, Wow, this is a moment. You know what happened right here? They're introduced to Jesus and they like it. This isn't just the carpenter's son. This is the guy that could change the world. Because if this scripture is really fulfilled, and we're going to get into what that scripture says, if this is really fulfilled, wow. And then look at verse 28, just six verses later. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on the city which was built that they might throw him down over the cliff. What in the world happened between verse 22 and verse 28 that you would say, wow, this is the man. And then just one story later, you would go, okay, he deserves to die. I mean, they don't just go from wow to, "Mm, I don't know if we're coming back tomorrow night. No, they go from wow to let's kill him as fast as possible. He is so dangerous, he needs to die now because we cannot let out of this room what just came out of his mouth. 
And I find this, this is amazing to me. Like what could have happened that would take them from what I call from awe to anger? Because they're in awe and then they're so mad that they wish that he would die. Now, you've read the Luke chapter 4 story before. I've read the Luke chapter 4 story before. I'm not trying to give you new material tonight. I'm not going to put something in the Bible that hasn't always been there. But what I like to do sometimes is sort of turn the stones over that we've gotten so used to being there. They've gotten smoothed over in our consciousness. Because what happens sometimes is we read the Bible and we read it so much we're like water moving over a rock. It gets real smooth. If you take that rock and flip it over, it's the same rock, but it's got new edges, new sides. And sometimes we've got to flip the scripture over and go, what if, they, what if he's saying something we've stopped thinking about? And, and what, the reason why we do that is because we are not first century Jews. And, and so we're, we're 21st century Americans which means we think about things differently than a first century Jew. So in some ways, the Jesus you have up here right now, whatever Jesus you have up here right now, in some ways is influenced more than you know by the fact that you're a 21st century American. And the Jesus you just read about in Luke chapter 4, in more ways than they could have imagined, was influenced by first century Judaism living in a backwater region of the Roman Empire, the most powerful empire in the world of that day. And that Jesus is standing in front of them is influenced by that. So knowing that we can't get in a time machine to go back in the first century, what we're going to try to do tonight is as best as possible, think in terms of that first century Jew. And the way we have to do that is look at the stories they were familiar with. And Jesus actually uses three of them in this Luke chapter four passage. The first one that he uses is at the top of the story. It's what caused them to be amazed. I want to read that to, to, uh, with you. In Luke chapter 4, look in verse 16. Jesus comes to Nazareth. Now we're going right back to the top. All right, We're going to lead you up to 22. We're going to run you through 22. We're going to end up way back there in 28 when everybody wants Jesus to die. And I want to find out what's going on. We're going to investigate those three stories. Here's how it begins. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was... He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Can I just take a pause here real quick before we read any farther? This is a habit I have sometimes. I, I, I see it. I, I, I want to talk about it for a second. So rather than read the whole thing and then come back. Notice that Jesus had a custom to get together with his family. That's a custom we need. And I mean your church family. All right. And I know I'm preaching to the choir. Anytime you say this to people who are at church, you're preaching to people who are at church, not people who are not at church. But Whatever you call church, you need it because you're a follower of a man who believed it was good custom to get together with other people who believed in his God. So whether you do that in a Sunday morning, go to meeting, or you do that in your living room over coffee, get with other believers in an environment where you can turn it into a custom. Also, church, customs are not bad. They're only bad when they shroud you from being able to see the love of God. Custom gone to seed is whenever it becomes bigger than the God the custom was pointing at. And that's what happened to a lot of us in religion is the religion got bigger than the God we were supposed to be falling in love with. And then you cut the custom out. But we don't cut custom out because custom's bad. We cut anything out that shrouds and clouds the vision that we should have of a loving father. All right. So Jesus had a custom of getting together with other believers, other of his family, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. 
And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And you might jot this down. The place where it is written is Isaiah 61. The reason I want you to know that is because on your own personal Bible study, this is a fun project. Go back to Isaiah 61 and see what Jesus did with Isaiah 61. And you might be surprised that he actually plays with it a little bit. Jesus goes back to Isaiah 61. He even adds a thing that's not in Isaiah 61. So Jesus is listening to the Spirit as he reads the text. And he's listening to what his father would have him say in Isaiah 61 when he says this in Luke 4.18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set it live. By the way, recovery of sight to the blind is what you'll, you won't find in Isaiah 61. When you go back and read this later, Jesus adds that one. No one had ever healed a blind man of blindness in the history of the world until Jesus. And so Jesus comes to make the healing of the blind an allegory. I don't mean he didn't really heal them, but he wants to use it as an allegory for setting right what went wrong in the garden. Man's eyes, the scales fell off and his natural eyes opened. The problem was when his natural eyes opened in the garden, his spiritual eyes went blind. Jesus came to reverse and get us to stop looking at the natural and start looking at the spiritual. And so Jesus said, I come to make blind people see. I come to reverse what messed mankind up. I want to give them sight. And to proclaim, look at the, last, the first phrase of 19, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. I stop here because we read the next three verses a moment ago where Jesus closes the book, sets down, says, today's this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. And everybody goes, Wow. All right, so we got you right up to the wow moment. Look at this Jesus. This guy must be the one. Why are they so excited? Because if you're a first century Jew, you've been reading Isaiah 61 since you were a little bitty kid. You've been having this baby recited to you every Saturday in the synagogue, every time that reading comes around. And as they have read this, here's what you heard. Someday, someone in our future, in our proud family of believers, of proud family of God, our circumcised bloodline, somebody is going to come along whom the Spirit of the Lord is going to rest upon. And when that guy gets here, he is going to heal the sick. He is going to, he is going to open blinded eyes. Well, they, Jesus says he'll open blinded eyes, but they said he's going to set captives free. He's going to heal the brokenhearted. He's going to preach the gospel to the poor. And he's going to declare the acceptable year of the Lord. And we can't wait because we've been waiting on that acceptable year of the Lord. The acceptable year of the Lord was what the Jews called jubilee. And Jubilee was a promised event from Leviticus 25. Every 50th year in Israel, you were to repeal all debts and return property to its original owner. You will never hear, you'll hear a lot of sermons in the American church of stuff people think we ought to do because it's in the Bible, bless God. And you'll never hear one on Jubilee. And I'll tell you why you'll never hear one. Because the Jewish idea of Jubilee was if you buy a piece of property in the 50th year, it goes back to the guy you bought it from. So build accordingly. It ain't yours forever. If you bought it, you bought it 
credited against how many years were left in Jubilee. If you bought it on the 37th year of Jubilee, you only paid a 13th of the price because there was only 13 years left in Jubilee. So you didn't pay for the whole 50 years. You only paid for the next 13 years because it was going back. You, and also, all debts are canceled. Whatever I owe Jamie when Jubilee is declared, I don't owe Jamie anymore. Whatever Jamie owes me when Jubilee is declared, I don't owe Jamie anymore. You know how much evidence we have that Israel actually ever called a Jubilee in their history? Zero. Zero. Even though it's right there in Leviticus 25 that they're supposed to. We don't have any evidence they ever actually did it because it was actually too much even for them. They went, mm, I can't give this property up. Come on, man. I planted my, I raised my kids here. I can't give this back to the guy I bought it from. Guy I bought it from is a scoundrel. I can't let that guy go debt free. God's already not letting me charge any interest. That's another thing you'll never hear preached in the American pulpit. The guy's already not letting, God's not letting me charge him interest on the loan I gave him. Now you got to give, now you got to let him off scot-free just because they called a jubilee. So what happens is Israel begins to spiritualize Jubilee. And here's why. Because Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me for the anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and set at liberty those that are bruised and, set and open the captives' doors and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and how they interpreted that was. There's one coming who's going to be anointed by God to proclaim a national Jubilee. Okay, think like a first century Jew. Who, whose thumb are you under? The Roman Empire. Caesar, you don't have your own territory. You're in debt to the empire. And here comes your Messiah to declare Jubilee. So based upon the definition of Jubilee, what's going to happen to Caesar? He's going down. What's going to happen to the land? We're getting it back. What's going to happen to the debt you owe? No debt we owe. And Jesus goes, today is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And everybody goes, wow. We get what we paid for. All that blood, sweat, and tears, and persecution. This is the one that's going to give it to us. It belonged to Abraham. It belonged to Isaac. It belonged to... I got this in my heritage. I am owed this. And there's a general excitement in the room when Jesus goes, Today is it fulfilled? Because they thought, Yes! We've been waiting on the day it would be fulfilled. If this guy's the one, we get it all back. Somebody in the crowd goes, but isn't this Joseph's kid? And Jesus, I was, I was working, putting these final thoughts together today, and I thought, if Jesus could have just left well enough alone, right here, if he could have just went, yep, today this is fulfilled in your ears, and just walked out, oh, what a ministry he could build. Oh man, he'd be packing out arenas. He'd be packing out arenas all over Rome if he could just let it rest. But he can't let it rest. And let me show you why he can't let it rest. Somebody goes, Is this just isn't Joseph's son, the carpenter? And Jesus goes, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, physician, heal thyself. Which, by the way, Jesus is quoting a Greek poet from the 7th century BC. He's not quoting Torah. 
He's not quoting God. He's using secular literature. And he goes, I know what you're thinking. Physician, heal yourself. We still use that phrase to this day. Physician, heal thyself. Oh, my doctor can tell me I got problems with my weight, but that guy's 30 pounds overweight. Physician, heal yourself. That's kind of our attitude, right? Don't tell me what I got wrong if you got the same thing wrong. That's how we use that text. And so Jesus goes, I know what you're thinking. Physician, heal thyself. You are thinking that I should be able to solve, I, I should solve all of the problems here. That's what you're excited about. And if I don't solve all of the problems here, it's going to be, hey, physician, heal thyself. And then Jesus tells two more stories. Now, remember, where are we heading? I gave you the heads up earlier. We're heading to hate him, let's kill him, right? And it's only going to take six verses to get there. I mean, most of us, it takes at least six sermons to get there. Maybe six years, maybe six decades. Jesus does it in six verses. This is incredible. I mean, I've went from the, excite, you know, the exciting young preacher to a heretic, and it, didn't it took me more than six sermons, but not many more. I mean, Jesus pulls it off in six verses, so I'm, I admire this. This is not pretty incredible. What is it that Jesus says? Now, here, I want to warn you. You've read it before, but we're going to read it again. And I want to warn you, if you're like me, when you read it, you're not going to get near as mad as they do. And that's going to be the first piece of evidence that we don't think like a first century right. Jew. All right? Okay, we're going to read it and go, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then once we flip that switch and go back to thinking the way they would, maybe we'll see it. So watch the two stories. These are the two stories that turn the crowd. Jesus says this in verse 25. I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. There's story number one. Story number two takes about half as much space on the page. It's the 27th verse. And many lepers were in Israel by the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Now I'm going to reread for you the next verse, 28. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, rose up, thrust him out of the city, led him to the brow of the hill, they're going to stone him to death. What happened? Those two stories seem rather innocent, right? If, if I predicted it correctly, when you read them, you kind of went, eh, yeah, why would you get so mad? And why are they so ticked off at Jesus? Okay, let's put ourselves back in the ideology of someone who's raised on the stories of the Torah, which is the law. That's essentially Genesis through Deuteronomy, but that's not all. You're also raised on the stories of the prophets and the chronicles of Israel, and you're raised on Midrash, which is the vocal teachings of the Jewish rabbis and they've told you the stories of the famous prophets your entire life. You want that was a lot like Sunday school. A lot of you came up in Sunday school and you'd hear a story about Daniel in the lion's den or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And those oral traditions formed what you think of those stories. Okay, and we did that whether we realized it or not. And so they have the oral tradition of their heroes. And two of their prophetic heroes are two men in the Old Testament. One of them is in 1 Kings named Elijah. And the other is in 2 Kings named Elisha. And Jesus could have picked any story from the Old Testament. But he picked these two. And he picked them for a very specific reason. And the reason is why they turn on him in verse 28. So let me walk you through the story, all right? In 1 Kings right around the 17th chapter, you've got a man who comes on the scene named Elijah the Tishbite. He just pops into the biblical narrative out of nowhere. 
all of a sudden, like there's no background, just boom, walks in, starts talking to the king, goes, God told me to tell you it's not going to rain for three and a half years. And he walks out. Now, you're a false prophet if it rains. So he goes out into the wilderness to prepare for it to not rain. And he sets by the brook Cherith where it does not rain for three and a half years. And during that time, the ravens come down out of the heavens and drop meat and bread on the ground in front of Elijah. And he eats what the ravens give him. Ravens are carrion birds. They eat the dead. They don't feed the living. And so it's miraculous and Elijah knows it. He knows he's heard from God because the the natural order of things has been turned upside down. And the carrion are feeding him every day and he's drinking water from the brook Cherith. And in three and a half years, the brook Cherith dries up and the Holy Spirit comes to Elijah and he says, I want you to head to town. The closest town is in the region of Sidon. It's in a little village called Zarephath or Seraphah in the Greek. And when you get there, there's going to be a little widow woman. I want you to knock on her door and I want you to tell her to make you a cake and eat it. And then you bless her house. And Elijah walks up to the little woman's house and he knocks on the door and he says, the Lord sent me to tell you to make me a cake. And the woman says this to Elijah. She says, I have enough meal to make bread for my son and for me. I was just about to go into the kitchen to make it. When I make it, we're going to eat it and we're going to die. And Elijah goes, I hear you. Make it for me. This is tough ministry right here. It's tough sledding. And the woman says this amazing thing. I'll do it for your Lord and your God. She doesn't say I'll do it for my Lord and my God. And here's why. Zarephath is in Sidon. Sidon is filled with Gentiles. Zarephath is not inside the 12 tribes of Israel. The widow at Zarephath is a Gentile. She's not a Jew. God is not her God. She worships the heathen gods of the land. And God sent Elijah to her house. She makes the cake for the man of God. He eats it. And then he says, now go check out the oil and the meal. And when she lifts the lid, there's enough for her and her son. And then that night she lifts the lid and there's enough for her and her son and the prophet. And she lifts the lid and there's enough for her and her son and her prophet. And she does this three times a day. As long as the man of God lives in her house, she keeps opening the lid and there's just enough. And manna is happening in the kitchen of a Gentile. Okay. Second Kings five, the Bible tells the story of Elisha, the prophet, Elijah's protege. Elijah is off the scene. Elisha's on the scene. There is a general in the Syrian army who has heard that in Israel, there is a prophet who can speak the words of God. This, this general in the Syrian army has leprosy and is going to die. He is one of the most famous generals in the bloodthirsty killer Syrian army full of Gentile soldiers led by a Gentile general named Naaman. And Naaman comes into the land of Israel and he inquires after 
the man of God and someone says, I think it's probably the guy, actually he's told about it from a little servant girl because he took a Jewish slave girl in with him during war and she's living in his house and the little slave girl goes, oh, I wish you were back in Israel. There's a man of God there that would know what to do for you. And so Naaman gets on his horse and takes a bunch of gold and silver and jewels and rides to the foothills of Elisha's house and calls out to Elisha to heal him and the servant Comes to Elisha and says, there's a general here who wants to be healed. What do you want me to do? And Elisha says, tell him to go dip in the river Jordan seven times. And the servant comes out to the Syrian. I keep emphasizing this because I want you to realize that he's not a Jew. The Syrian general Naaman. And the, and the servant comes out to the Syrian general Naaman and goes, go dip seven times. And Naaman goes, come on. The Jordan River is the dirtiest river in the whole world. Why would I dip in the Jordan River? And his servant elbows him and goes, if he had asked for money, you'd have gave it. Why don't you just go dip? And Naaman goes, yeah, what do I got to lose? Rides his horse down to the Jordan River, jumps in, gets out, jumps in, gets out, jumps in seven times. That's a Jewish number, not a Gentile number. He feels like an idiot. The Jews do things in sevens, complete numbers, but he does it. That's what the God, their God told him to do. Why not? What do I got to lose? I'm going to die of leprosy anyway. When he comes out the seventh time, his skin is pure and white and he is completely restored and healed of his plague and he tries to send the money back and there's a, there's a story. Elisha won't take it because he won't be bought off. And what has happened is that a Gentile general has been healed of leprosy in the waters of Jewish Jordan. When Jesus chooses two stories to tell, in his hometown of Nazareth on a Saturday morning, after proclaiming the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he hath anointed me to give you jubilee. Today, jubilee. And everybody goes, wow, he's the one. Not so fast. Here's a couple stories, because my idea of jubilee is not your idea of jubilee. See, you think I came to take Rome off your back, give you your property back, Take all your debts, clear your name, and make you happy. He says, but let me share you a couple stories about my dad's heart. My father's heart has never been only for the people who call him daddy. His heart has always been for those who don't have any right to call him daddy. And he goes, in case you think I'm wrong, let me give you a couple stories. And here's how Jesus pitches it. He goes, were there not enough widows in the land of Judea that God would send his prophet not to a widow that's a Jewish widow, but he would send him to Sidon to a Gentile's house to deliver her and her child from hunger. Why didn't he send Elijah to a Jewish woman? And while you're chewing on that, let me give you another story. One time there was a general of a Syrian army. Remember those guys? Your parents and grandparents have been telling you stories about Syria your entire life, those bloodthirsty devils. And one time one of their best came to God's man and asked for a healing. Now I ask you, were there not enough lepers in all the land of Israel that God couldn't find a good Jewish boy to heal of leprosy? That He had to make the one leper He healed in the entire Old Testament a Syrian? You go, what in the world does that story mean? Put yourself in the mind of that first century Jew who's waiting on his Messiah. My Messiah is coming, and when he gets here, they're going to pay, man. 
He's going to break Caesar. He's going to crush Rome. He's going to knock the opposite political party out of power. He's going to put our people in there. We're going to run the show. We're going to make the laws. We're going to rule the roost. We're going to own the land. We're going to do everything God's been wanting us to do. And it's all in the name of God because they're good godly people, right? Of course they are. They're God's chosen. We're, God's sending us the Messiah and that's exactly what He does, is going to do. And Jesus goes, hold your horses just a second. My dad doesn't think the way you think. When dad wants to heal a leper, he don't care if it's a Jew or a Gentile. When dad wants to bless a widow, he doesn't care if it's a Jew or a Gentile. Or maybe he does. He goes, because, because you think it all belongs to you, there's a few times in my dad's history where he picked a Gentile on purpose. See Elijah, see Elisha. Jubilee is for more than just you. And when he said that, the crowd turned. Six verses. That's all it took. Six verses to transition from, wow, what a Messiah, to if he goes outside of this house and preaches that message, he needs to die. We cannot let this be the message of the kingdom that everybody gets in. We can't let the adulterous woman hear this. We can't let the tax collector hear this. We can't let the Roman centurion hear this. We can't let Pontius Pilate hear this. These people need to die. These people need to pay. Jubilee is for all of us who do the right thing, who know the scriptures and who pay our tithes and who come to synagogue as is our custom. We are excited because we have found our boy. But if you think you're going to go outside of this room and act like the Naamans and the widows of Zarephath are on the same level as we are, buddy, we'll push you to the edge of a cliff and knock you off into an abyss faster than you can say your own name. We will not back a Messiah that includes the other. So why did they turn in six verses? Because Jesus did it on purpose. The moment you get excited that you've got your man, God will step in to show you who the man belongs to. And it ain't just you. Those who look like you, sing like you, read like you, fast like you, go to church like you, pray like you, dress like you, act like you, quote verses like you. They are not the only ones and that's going to tick us off if our custom is a religion that has clouded the loving face of the Father. It's going to tick us off so much. And this is tough, but this is Luke 4. It's going to tick us off so much. We'd rather that Jesus die than save people we can't stand. We'd rather shut that message down than include people that cannot possibly be included. They can't count the way we count. They haven't done what we've done. They haven't prayed what we've prayed. They haven't done, acted as we've acted. They haven't sacrificed what we've sacrificed. They haven't been persecuted like we've been persecuted. They haven't been in church their entire lives every night, every day. Seeking God. They didn't skip out on the dances and the parties. They didn't miss the stuff I missed. I gave up so that I could have more of Him. And you mean to tell me that when He declares my jubilee, He declares it for Naaman? A guy who heard what his healing looked like and complained. 
that the river was too dirty. Or the widow of Zarephath, who when she heard about God, she doesn't call him my God, she calls him your God. Because the entire time Elijah's living in her house, God isn't her God. God is Elijah's God. Why didn't God move on to someone who cared? David had this problem when he was bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. And one of his guys reached up to stop the ark from falling off of the cart and fell over dead. And David got scared. And he stopped the procession and he said, take it to the nearest house and leave it. God's too big for me to touch. So they turned and took it to the house of Obed-Edom. Obed of Edom. Obed of Esau. A Gentile. And they dropped it in his living room because if people are going to die for touching the ark, at least let it be a Gentile. That's the, that's the reasoning. So here you go. Good luck. See you in three months. And they left. And the Bible says that for the next 90 days, favor fell on the house of Obadiah. And David heard about it back in his palace. And he went, hmm. I need some of that. Let's go get that ark and bring it home. Walked into the house of Obadiah and carried the ark back to Jerusalem. But he didn't take it to Gibeah where the tabernacle was set up. Instead, he brought it to his backyard and he set it on the ground and put a tent around it and opened the flat door and made an announcement in Israel. Anybody that wants to see God's presence, come to my house. I'll give you a loaf of bread and a flagon of wine. And the Bible says they threw a party and all of Israel walked in front of the Ark of the Covenant and peeked in because David had learned that you don't get to tell God who gets favor. Just put Him in front of people and let God do the picking. You want to know how convinced the early church was of this? They weren't sure Gentiles were really saved. So they threw a big meeting in Acts chapter 15. They threw the first Christian council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. And at the first Christian council, they said, are Gentiles really saved? And Peter stood up and goes, I don't know about all of them, but I just preached to a bunch of Italians in Cornelius' house. This happened in Acts 10, five chapters earlier. And Peter goes, I just preached to a bunch of Italians in Cornelius' house. And here's all I know, that the Holy Ghost fell in that room and they received him the same way you and I did. So it taught me that maybe, listen to this, it taught me that maybe we get saved like they do. You didn't catch that. Here's what you think he said. It taught me that they're going to get saved like we do. No. Here's what Peter said. It taught me that we get saved like they do. This is, this is big. This is a first century Jewish man who's had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus who's baptized in the Holy Ghost and watched the Holy Spirit fall on a bunch of Italians and went, mm, wait a minute, none of them are circumcised, none of them know the Torah. I think I'm supposed to get saved the way they did. Not they're supposed to get saved the way I do. I think God might be doing something here. And after Peter talks, James and Paul and uh, Barnabas stand up and talk. And they start telling stories about winning Gentiles to Jesus. And James, the brother of Jesus, stands up and says, I think we might be dealing with a tabernacle of David's situation. Have you ever read that and thought, what's the tabernacle of David? 
You know what the tabernacle of David was? When he put the Ark of the Covenant in his backyard, threw a tent around it, yep. held the door open, told everybody they can have a loaf of wine, a flag and a wine, a loaf of bread, they come look at God. And James heard about Gentiles getting saved and went, I think the tabernacle of David is back. I think anybody that wants in can get in. And the crowd turned on Jesus and said, kill him. Let us not be amazed. Let us not be, let us be amazed at the Jubilee of the Spirit. Let us not be amazed that the Jubilee of the Spirit will always include people that we are pretty sure do not qualify. That's right. That is so true. Right? You don't get to make the rules. You want to know what it meant when Jesus told the Elijah and the Elisha story? Here's what it meant. You don't get to make the rules. If my dad wants to heal one leper in the world and he picks a bloodthirsty Syrian, you don't get to tell God who he gets to save. If my dad chooses to bless one widow and her kid and he picks a Gentile woman who doesn't even trust God, you don't get to choose. And the crowd went, you can't be our Messiah because our Messiah don't tell us what to do. Listen, we are not followers of fads and flags and politics and countries and ideas and ministers. We are followers of Jesus. And Jesus says, you don't get to pick who belongs. You don't get to pick. You go, is there another Jesus story that tells us? I'm glad you asked because there is one more. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus tells the story of the day laborers in the vineyard. I won't read it. I'll just tell it to you. You can read it when you get home. It's in Matthew 20. And the day laborers of the vineyard is one of my favorite stories of all the Jesus stories because it's the one that makes us the most angry when Jesus tells it. I love it. Just in case you don't remember, I'll share it with you and just see if you get a little hot right at the end. You get a little hot, then you're going to know you're trying to tell God who he gets to love. All right? So get ready. Jesus tells the story of the day laborers and a man owns a vineyard and he needs harvest. So he goes out at sunrise into the marketplace and he hires a bunch of workers. And he goes, if you work for me, I'll pay you this much at the end of the day. And they all jump in the chariot and ride to the winery and they go crazy harvesting. And he gets out there and the sun's up and the fog's blasting off and he realizes he needs more workers. He ain't going to get the job done. So while those guys are two or three hours into their job, he goes back to town. He walks right back to the labor line and he goes, anybody want a job? And a bunch of guys raise their hand. He goes, I'll give you any names a price. About lunchtime, he does it again. And about three o'clock in the afternoon, he does it again. And then right before the day is over, he does it again. And before the day is over, he's got guys working that whole field. And when the sun goes down, he calls everybody in to pay them. And he starts with the last guy he hired. The guy's worked about an hour, barely sweating. And he pulls his pay purse out. And he hands him a coin, and one of the guys, drenched in sweat, covered in dirt, exhausted, laying over there against the wall, looks up and sees that it's the same amount he promised he was going to give him. And he elbows his buddy and says, he's changed his mind. He saw how tough this is. He's going to give us more money. 
Because he told me and you he'd give us that amount right there. That guy worked one hour. And as it goes, he watches everybody get the same amount of pay until he gets to the first crew, covered in sweat and dirt. And he hands every one of them the amount he promised them. And that one boy that's been laid against that wall, he can't take it anymore. He's mad. This was the best job I ever had. And then six verses later, I'm ready to kill this dude. (laughs) And he says, how can you give me the same amount that you gave the guy that only worked an hour? And the master said, did I not promise you this amount? What is, listen to this phrase. What is it to you if I pay people what I want to? You know what Jesus is saying? You don't get to pick who gets blessed, who gets saved, who gets anointed, who gets favored. You just get to rejoice that God did it. You just rejoice that God blessed you, that God favored you. You see, Jesus. So what was our thesis? Why'd they miss Jesus? I wouldn't miss Jesus. If I was here, Jesus was here today, I'd see him. Are you sure? Why'd they miss Jesus? It's not just because they wanted someone to overthrow Caesar. It's not just because they were looking for a king. They missed Jesus because Jesus included people they excluded. And what would you do if you saw him and he was hanging out with the people you wouldn't be caught dead hanging out with? I know what we would do. We'd call him off to the side and go, look, you could do a lot better. If you wouldn't hang out with these people, you know how many people, who many lives you could change if you'd do it this way? Listen, if you'd stop doing this and start doing this, things would go a lot better. Ladies and gentlemen, when Judas Iscariot walked into the rulers of Israel and asked for what it would take to deliver how much they would give him to deliver Jesus up. I do not believe that Judas Iscariot thought he was selling Jesus to the death. And I'll tell you why. Because when he found out they were going to kill him, the Bible says he ran back into the temple and threw the money at them and said, no, you weren't supposed to kill him. Okay, then time out. If you weren't supposed to kill him, what in the world was the betrayal for? Because in Judas's mind, it wasn't a betrayal at all. In Judas's mind, It was bringing Jesus to the bargaining table to finally get Jesus to be what Judas thought he could be. You got so much potential, Jesus. If I could make you buddies with these guys instead of enemies with these guys, you'd change the world, man. Please, won't you sit down and just compromise a little bit. He's stubborn, guys. He won't do it. But for 30 pieces of silver, I'll show you where he is. Here's my fear. And I mean this. My fear is that not only would I not recognize Jesus, but I would sell him. Because I've got a pretty good idea of what I think God ought to do in America. And I'd sell him to the White House and Congress and the powers that be and the pastor and the mayor and the governor. And I'd say, if you just sit down with them, 
He could change the world. And Jesus would say to me, you don't get to pick. What a start to a weekend meeting about Jesus, right? So you leave tonight and go, would I have caught it? I don't know. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. You would have caught him. You would have saw him. You would have said, there's Jesus. I'm going to change me and follow him. And I know you probably would have because there are always some who will change and follow Jesus. Because see, we can be real negative and go, oh, none of us would have got it. But the truth is, is that sometimes Jesus steps up onto your boat when you're Peter and you're fishing and you've been fishing all night and he goes, cast your nets on the other side. And you do it because you ain't got nothing to lose. Because all hell's come against you. And you just throw your net out there and a bunch of fish get in. And you know what you do? You fall down on the deck of your boat and you go, please depart from me. I'm a sinful man. I can't. And then Jesus goes, get up. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And you go, I'll follow you into hell and back. And Jesus will have to rebuke you along the way because that's what he does to Peter because that's what he would do to all of us. But you stick it out. And you end up at Pentecost full of the Holy Ghost. I want, to end up, I want to end up here. I don't want to end down here. All right? I want to end up here. And you stick it out. Or you're Nathaniel, and you got all this head knowledge, and you meet Jesus one day, and he goes, hey, look at, it. Look at old Nathaniel. Look at Nate. An Israelite in him is no gall. And Nate goes, wow, you must be the one. And Jesus goes, you think I'm the one because I knew your name? Get ready, Nate. You're going to see the heavens open and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That might have been us. We might have took our head knowledge of Bible and said, wow, there's Jesus. And Jesus would have said, you ain't seen nothing yet. Yeah. I hope so. I hope so. So I say to you, would you have missed it? Maybe you wouldn't have missed it. But I know realistically we have sometimes. Sometimes we've missed it. And we'll miss it again. You go, how do I keep from missing it? Don't put any fences around God's love. How do I keep from missing it? Here's a good place to start. Don't put any fences around God's love. You want to know what we've been doing the work of the devil in the church because we get up and point out sin, which is exactly what the enemy would do. If the enemy had one shot preaching the American church, he'd preach on sin. Promise you. Because he knows it would play right into our obsession with being moralists. Moralists are not followers of Jesus. You can be a moralist and be a follower of Allah. More, it, isn't, it, it isn't about lifting your morals to follow Jesus. It's about laying your life at Calvary to be resurrected into a risen Christ. Yeah. That's following Jesus. Yeah. Right. When you lay that down in him, some stuff dies. Yeah. I think this is good news. Yeah. I think it's good news. Let's pray this into our hearts, all right? Let's pray seed into our heart. Father, thank you tonight for what I count the greatest honor in the world. Talk about Jesus. Father, I pray tonight I've done justice. I pray I've made Jesus look good. Where I have failed and Paul White has gotten away, Father, forgive me. And Father, move that out in the soil of your people's heart. Shine the spotlight on your son tonight, Father. And help us all answer the question. Would we... Have missed Jesus? I pray there's not a soul in this room, myself included, that would have missed him. But I know me being honest, I've missed you before because I've put walls and fences around who you get to love, who you get to bless. Father, may we never do it again. May we accept that sometimes Elijah goes to the widow at Zarephath and sometimes Elisha heals Naaman the Syrian. And we wouldn't have healed either one 
But that's okay. Jubilee isn't just for us. It's for whosoever. Thank you. Help us with that. Teach us that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Pastor Jamie, God bless you. Man.